Hey guys, Ben here, and uh, just sharing a special bonus episode with you. This is a sermon that I preached back in 2018 on Exodus chapter 17, 1 to 7. Enjoy the listen. Hey everyone, my name is Ben Kerlick, and I don't know what you know about Exodus, but I will assume that you know some things as we are in chapter 17 today, and I hope we discover something new together as well. So uh, before we get started, we're going to read the entire uh, section of scripture, and we'll pray and get going. So this is Exodus 17, 1 to 7. All the people... All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink, and therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, it is, the Lord, is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. God, thanks for this moment and this day where we can gather together before your word and to read it, and to think on it, and to do it. Guide us in our minds and our hearts today as we receive from what you have done through Moses and the people of Israel. So Israel has found themselves in a familiar position, led by God into a place called Rephidim, in the wilderness, where there is no water to be found. This just happened to them in chapter 15 at Marah, where there was water, but it was bitter and not drinkable. I personally can't fully understand what the situation would be like. I can only draw on from my own personal experience, which is a far cry from drought. The closest thing to being out of water is when my brother, my dad, and I hiked further into the mountains than we intended and were forced to eat snow. Again, not even close to a drought. There were three of us in the mountains of BC where we have more rain than we want. And Israel was a nation of people, families, children, animals, in the wilderness. We were a five to six hour hike from a cheeseburger and an ice cold beverage with the tap of a credit card. Again, the situations aren't even close. But the problem is pretty obvious. There is no water and none in sight. But what shows us here is that there is actually a secondary, more real problem is that they don't have trust or faith in God to provide for them. So again, Israel finds themselves in a familiar position, in a place where their God has led them, where they aren't able to provide their basic needs for themselves. There were no good options. Ironically, this place, Rephidim, means resting place in Hebrew, an interesting name given the circumstances. Okay, so having been in this situation before, the people of Israel should know the drill by now. Remember, step number one is to just remember what God has done, and that he's there for you. Step two is to pray. Step three is to wait for God to provide. Step four is to partake in his provision. 
Step five is to celebrate, and step six is to remember again. After all, he has a memorable track record. Literally, at the Red Sea, Moses says these words in Exodus 14, 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you say see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Now, in my Bible, that statement is three pages ago, not to mention the deliverance out of Egypt, the manna during a food shortage, and the bitter water turned sweet. They have experienced God's provision before. But instead of remembering and following what I'm going to be calling the six steps to being an awesome Israelite, they pouted, complained, quarreled, and grumbled. Now, in all fairness, they were worried about dying from dehydration. They had babies, they had wives, they had animals. But this is the fourth time they're guilty of grumbling. Chapter 14, 15, and 16. And once again, they took it out on their favorite whipping boy, Moses. Now, the English word quarreling used here in verse 2 is a pretty tame word to be translated, as they were more likely becoming hostile with Moses, undermining and threatening his authority, demanding that he would provide water. They even accused him of attempting homicide in chapter 17, verse 3, saying he was trying to get everyone killed. Are you trying to get us killed? Literally has that statement. Now, even though these complaints are hurled at Moses, we have to understand that they are actually questioning God, Yahweh himself. Now, remember, Moses is God's representative leader of the people of Israel. And as his representative, when they question his leadership, his direction, his actions, they are in turn questioning Yahweh's. Now, this becomes evident in Moses' response in 17. Verse 2, why do you quarrel with me? Why, and why do you put the Lord to the test? Now, Moses knew he was appointed by God and did not himself, by his own design, lead Israel into the wilderness. God directed him to this place for his purpose. So, by rejecting Moses, the Israelites rejected God. They were putting God to the test. When has someone in the Bible ever done that before? Whatever the reason for our discontent, it shows that we aren't satisfied with what God has given us. And this is where it goes bad. It's not wrong to take our troubles to God in prayer. As a matter of fact, the Bible is saturated with encouragements to be honest with him in all our doubts and difficulties. But he does not accept open revolt towards his leadership and a refusal to trust him, which, in case you were daydreaming for the last five minutes, is in fact what the Israelites were doing. So the problem is that they don't have any water. But the real problem is that they don't have trust or faith in Yahweh. So here come the complaints. The story brings to our attention three statements made to Moses, each of which represents a different kind of complaint about God. We have to take a deeper look at these. Now here's complaint number one. Give us water to drink. Here they're demanding God's provision. And we have to ask the question, was it a sin to be demanding? Or was it the reason or the motive for why they were being demanding? The problem is not that they were demanding of God, but rather why. 
We're invited to call upon God's character in situations of need. Moses is a great example of this later on in Exodus 32. There, God has decided he is done with Israel after the golden calf incident, and Moses actually reasons with God, reminding him of his own provision in the past, reminding Yahweh, God, of the covenant he made with his people, and that in doing this, he would be breaking his covenant. Let's pick it up in Exodus 32, 14, which describes God's response. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Wow. I'm going to read that again just to let it sink in. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So what's the difference between this and what Israel is saying? I think the main difference is the intention. This was not a cry out to God for help because they trusted him. This was a demand to give them what they wanted or else. Which leads us into complaint number two. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To die from thirst? This is a complaint that God deni- uh, that denies God's protection. They assumed the worst. They concluded that God had abandoned them to the point of death. And they literally thought that this was the end of them as a people. Now, again, even though their words are spoken to Moses, they are really directed to Yahweh. Not only do these words sting, they also reflect on their prior deliverance from Egypt. Now, this is a sore spot with God that the people bring up over and over. For some reason, the Israelites had it in their mind that being in Egypt was easier than getting to know their God in the wilderness. That being in slavery was better than living in uncertainty. To get an idea of how seriously God feels about never going back to Egypt again, let's jump to Deuteronomy seventeen sixteen, which talks about the job description for the king of Israel. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Now, this isn't a random hate on, but rather a righteous anger against slavery. His children will not willingly go back and fall into slavery again. They have been delivered. Their slavery has been taken care of, and it is the same with us. This is what Jesus means when he says, go and sin no more. He came so that slavery would be no more. Now, Israel is being ungrateful for their prior deliverance and do not believe that God is able to protect them in a drought. And this is a serious lack of trust in God's protection. Complaint number three is actually a test of God when they ask, is the Lord here or not? The complaint, again, is a test, doubting God's presence. The lack of water made them wonder if he was really with them at all. The Israelites needed only to remember God's track record. He had recently provided for them, turning bitter water street sweet, providing food in the desolate, dead wilderness. They also could be sure of God's protection as they were delivered from the hands of Pharaoh and the Red Sea. They could also remember his presence in the pillar of fiery cloud. How much proof did they really need? This is what one Bible expert calls spiritual amnesia. In a season of God testing the Israelites, they have now turned to testing God. 
Until now, God has been testing the Israelites to trust that he would provide, protect, and be present. A commentator, again, calls this spiritual education. Pause game. When have we looked at it that way? Whenever I think of spiritual education, I think of reading my Bible or going to Bible school or listening to a sermon. But instead, the testing of God through real-life circumstances is seen as spiritual education. Wow. What a perspective change. Now imagine if the Israelites had that same perspective. So here, Yahweh wants to see if they would trust that he would provide living water. But they were tired of being tested, and instead they thought they deserved the right to ask some questions instead of give some answers. So they did so in the most dramatic way possible. They charged God with breaking his covenant. Test is used twice in verse 2 and 7, and the type of test is actually a covenantal lawsuit. That's heavy. They brought forth their grievances and complaints and charged God with neglecting to provide, refusing to protect, and failing to be present. The alleged crime? Murder. Chapter 17, verse 3. They figured that if they were going to die away, that Moses, as God's representative, should be the first to go. The pitchforks and the torches are ready. Moses perceives this when he cries out to God, as stoning was a covenantal way of carrying out the death penalty. Moses has to think fast. He then takes a group of elders, forms his jury, and took up the staff of God that he gave him to proclaim divine judgment, as he did at the Nile over Egypt. The elders were gathered to provide testimony, have witnesses there. That it wouldn't just be Moses' word against the people, but that these leaders would be able to speak and act in confidence afterwards. Also, Massa, testing, and Meribah, quarreling, are both legal terms, thus confirming that this was a legal proceeding being decided here. After the evidence is gathered and the people's court wanted to hold God responsible for the way things were going since they weren't enjoying it, and instead of trusting God's plan, they wanted to bring judgment themselves. And I wonder, I ask you and I ask myself, when have I, when have we blamed God for our circumstances? Now to understand more fully what it is like to put God on trial and to make him prove himself, think of the way that Satan tested Jesus. Jesus refused to submit to Satan's trial, not because he couldn't pass, but because the trial itself was wrong. Thinking back to the Exodus, Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It isn't our place to bring God to trial. So here's the verdict. At this point, Moses becomes frustrated. He cries out, which is the right thing to do? What do you expect me to do with these people? I didn't ask for this job, remember? You were the one who put me in charge. And Moses is afraid, and in his fear, he too complains to God. Now, despite Moses' failures, at least he got the right person to complain to. It is in in, in an amazing turn of events, and with all this talk about how bad it is to put God to the test, God gave them the hearing they wanted. God delivered his people. God didn't merely allow the Israelites to find water, but showed them his provision by supplying them water out of an unusual source, a rock. 
God's attitude here is acting as a father whose children are in distress, and in their distress, an altercation breaks out between them. He pays no attention to the wrestling, but only seeks to deliver his children. Now, God opened the rock to produce water. He did this through the striking of the rock with a staff of judgment. He allowed himself to be a test, to be tested and accused by the people, and he passed. So what did the water prove? Everything that Israel was calling into question about their God. God provided water. He protected them from their unbelief, and the rock was proof of God's presence. He was their savior and deliverer standing on the rock. Now, their thirst, of course, was real, but infinitely more real was the powerful presence of Yahweh in their midst. Their lesser, sorry, the lesser reality they embraced, the more important reality they ignored and doubted. So once more, he dealt with the lesser reality, their thirst, by a demonstration of the greater underlying reality of his presence. God provides water. He protects his people from death and demonstrates his presence. Now, has God proved himself to you? I wonder how you have put him on trial. How you hold him accountable for the things in your life that you've experienced. Now, don't get me wrong. Life is hard. There is a lot of evil in the world and and it's difficult to make sense of it all. And maybe you're here today and you're jaded towards or skeptical of God. You may think he is distant, maniacal, and disinterested. That if he does exist, he has no idea what it means to be human, to be you. But here's the thing, God, he responds to that. God sent his son into the world and people did to him what the Israelites wanted to do to Moses. Jesus was without a home. He was hungry and thirsty. And when his life was almost over, all his rights were taken from him. He was stripped, mocked, and beaten, and then condemned to die the most disgraceful, excruciating death, death on a cross. Sometimes it's hard to find the thread of Jesus in the Old Testament, but in this story, we have some help from Paul into the in his letter to the Corinthian church, reflecting on this particular moment in Israel's history. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 4. Now they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. You see, the rock at Rephidim was Jesus Christ. The rock is a metaphor used many times in the Bible for God. The rock who is a fortress and a refuge, or he is the rock of our salvation. And to keep with this imagery, the rock Moses struck with his rod as a was a symbol of God and his salvation. It showed God as willing to submit to the blow of his own justice so that out of him would flow the water of life for his people. A theme of sacrifice and submission that culminates with Jesus. God did this with his own son. The rock was Christ because like the rock, he was struck with that same divine judgment. This is what ha- this is what happened to him on the cross. He was bearing the curse of our sins so 
God struck him down. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says, But he was pierced for hard transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That judgment was proof of our protection. It shows that those who believe in God, in him, will not suffer eternal death for our sins. Instead, God has taken the judgment off of our guilt and placed it upon himself. The rock was also Jesus because it flowed with the water of life. In the Gospel of John, water is a profound symbol, and as Jesus was pierced in the side while on the cross to check if he was truly dead, both blood and water flowed. Water was an evidence of death, but as the blood represented the bloodshed of our sins, the water also represented the life that was given by Christ's death. For Jesus is the water of life when he said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again, John four fourteen. He is our provider, our protector, as also a filler of the people with his presence by the Holy Spirit. If we continue in John 4, 14, the water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And you see, Jesus is for us. What God was for Israel, our provider, protector, and always present Lord. And this is what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 4.10 when he said, the rock was Christ. So what now? What do we do with the story and these realities that we've heard today? I think we need to remember and to follow the six steps to being an awesome Israelite. And if you forgot what they are, here they are. Step one is remember. Step two, pray, cry out to God. Step three, wait for God to provide. Step four, partake in his provision. Step five, celebrate. And step six, remember again. So let's walk through them. Step one, remember. We're able to look back at the faithfulness of God because he has a track record. The Bible has hundreds of examples, and so does your own life. There will be times in our lives when we think we are left with no good options, where we find ourselves in the proverbial wilderness where our safety is in jeopardy, our comfort is threatened, our relationships fail, and our ambitions are stifled, or our love is lost. In these situations, I encourage you to remember. Remember how God has delivered you before. Make them thoughts on the front of your mind. Some ways to do this might be stories you tell around your dinner table, before bed with your kids, with your colleagues at work, and most of all, stories you tell to yourself. The truth is that God is on the move. He is active. He is working. And we need to notice, tell the story, and remember it. Now, step two is to pray. We need to bring our situations to God, explaining to him what is going on and listening to what he has to say about it. Speaking to someone about something brings it out of the darkness and into the light. When we surrender control over to God, we stand on the solid rock of Jesus. We have to remember that those who are in Christ Jesus have been adopted into the family of God, and that adoption has privileges. 
We have the privilege of relationship and conversation with the creator of the universe. And like any good head of the house, his best interests are good for us. Yes, sometimes it means we are led into the wilderness, but maybe, maybe it's so he can have us all to himself to have some spiritual education, to show us a better way to live, to strengthen our allegiance to his son and to remind us of his faithfulness. We don't have to go through Moses. Instead, we go through Jesus straight to Yahweh himself. Step number three is to wait for God to provide. This may be the hardest part. This is the part we don't like. Being patient puts us on God's timeline rather than God on ours. Patience disarms our entitlement, our need for instant gratification and desire for a quick fix. We need to wait for God to provide because we aren't able to provide it ourselves, no matter hard how hard we try. Step four is to partake in his provision. Moses struck the rock and water poured out of it. It would have been a great shame if the people decided not to drink. Drink up. When God acts, transforms, speaks, take part in it, and drink your fill. The blessing of God's provision is like nothing else. Step five is celebrate. Throw a party. Israel had week-long festivals celebrating God's provision, protection, and presence. The Christian life isn't boring. Celebrate it. This is a time to give glory to God for who he is and what he has done. And sometimes when God moves, we say a quick prayer of thanks. Sometimes we let out a cheer, but man, I think we need more parties, more dinners of celebration where God has the honor of all the toasts. After all, the banquet feast in heaven is going to be a cosmic version of that. So why not start now? And step six is to remember Christian hope isn't based on our circumstances. Hope keeps our hearts and minds alert to what God is doing. It is the kind of hope that our world desperately needs. This is the reality of the kingdom of God brought to earth in Jesus, that followers of Jesus are not just people of optimism or pessimism, but rather a people of hope defined by God's truth and will. This is the hope. This is hope in the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is more than a story. It is a reality. Hope is more than an idea. It is a way of life. Remember, write it down, type it out, speak it loud, share it during times of sharing, around your dinner tables, when you get together with people, when God meets our needs for food, shelter, work, play, love, friendship, when God protects us, when we lead ourselves down a potential path of destruction, when God is close, those moments when you can hear his voice, when you're walking in his ways and when your wills and desires are aligned, if we remember these things, we will be able to trust him without complaining. Remember, is the beginning and the end. Remember, I'll admit following these steps isn't the easiest thing. Most of the time it's really hard and I have a story that doesn't perfectly follow the steps of being an awesome Israelite, but I think it fits in well with the process of prayer, waiting, celebrating, and remembering. 
Now, basically, I have a story of when I transferred, when I left a community and started at a new one. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I thought I was always going to be at my previous church. I thought I would spend my rookie years in youth ministry as a part of that congregation, but it wasn't to be. I had to leave. I was being led out into the wilderness. Now, I tried to plead my case. I, I offered to work more for the same amount of money, and I wanted to stay there. In remembering God's faithfulness in my life, I knew that if he planned for me to stay, then it would happen. I prayed that God would guide the decision makers into the right direction, again, staying here. But that wasn't the outcome. I was told that I was supposed to go somewhere new to have a different experience, to learn from different people. And after all, I had been there basically my whole life. Now, during this time, the wilderness for me was an unknown future a potential new home somewhere. Now, we were really afraid of moving to northern Saskatchewan, to be specific, and a questioning of God's plan. Eventually, I was reminded again to recall God's God's faithfulness up until this point. This gave me the courage to step out into the world and apply for some positions. You see, I I wasn't a youth group hopper or a church hopper, so I didn't really know what it was like outside of that place. I knew that leaving would mean giving up more than a job, but a community. During this time, I prayed for a number of things. I prayed for people to change their minds, for some miracle to happen for me to stay. I prayed against going to northern Saskatchewan. Let's be honest, my wife would freeze. I also prayed for the community that I would end up going to, that wherever it was, it would be the place that I would grow and learn, that it would be a place where I could pour my life into for many years, and that would, be, that would become a place of legacy. During many months of prayer, we waited for God to provide. Like the Israelites, there was some grumbling, but for the most part, my waiting had action. I began applying for positions and going to interviews, browsing online job sites, and Alicia redesigned my resume over and over again. There were promising positions that never worked out, and some I'm glad I didn't pursue. Eventually, Alicia found this totally random part-time position at a church in Langley called Southridge. I met with their youth pastor and dreamt about what it would be like for me to be there. It would mean that I would be leaving for something that wasn't 100%, that there would be an opportunity to become full-time after the first year if I was the right guy to take over the youth and young adults ministry. It meant taking a second job and a long commute, but a big opportunity to grow, learn, and be pushed outside my comfort zone in a totally different size and style of church, and maybe even be in the wilderness a little longer. So God provided me with a different location to walk in the wilderness with him. I partook in his provision of this position by accepting it. It's been just over five years now at Southridge, and I know that it was worth celebrating. One thing that comes to mind is the void that needed to be filled when I left. And guess who filled it? Uh, My own little brother. Had I stayed there, he wouldn't have been given the opportunity that he did. And I don't know, but I think that's definitely worth celebrating. And so that brings us full circle. 
now to remember i said already when god meets our needs for food shelter work play love and friendship when god protects us when we lead ourselves down a potential path of destruction and when god is close those moments when you can hear his voice when you're walking in his ways when your wills and desires are aligned if we remember these things we will be able to trust him without complaining and so in this i remember god's provision for me in the ministry that i have at southridge and sharing it with you today is an act of remembrance that i'm so thankful for so i encourage you again to remember to pray, to wait, to partake, to celebrate, and to remember again. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for this time that we got to spend together today. Uh, the opening of your word, it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces between heart and soul. And you've done that among us today. Help us to take up these steps Help us to know your story, to know how you've interacted with ours, and to trust you above everything else. We love you. We thank you for your presence in our lives. Amen.